Yes, ma'am. How's it going, everybody? And welcome to The Candid Clarinetist, the podcast where we explore the lives on and off the stage of professional clarinetists, musicians, teachers, and leaders of the orchestra industry. My name is Sam Rothstein, assistant principal clarinetist and bass clarinetist of the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra and the host of The Candid Clarinetist. Today's guest joins us after spending his first full year as the new associate professor of clarinet at the Eastman School of Music. Additionally, Michael Wayne has been a member of the Boston Symphony since 2008, as well as on the faculty of the New England Conservatory and the Tanglewood Music Center. I first had a chance to work with Michael when I was a fellow at Tanglewood back in 2012, and I consider him to be one of my primary musical mentors. He's an incredible teacher and a player, and I feel so lucky to have been able to learn from him both in my time at Tanglewood and in the years since. Michael, how's it going today? Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm really excited to, to have you here and talk through all these topics today. So my icebreaker for you, I'm sure that you are aware and have been exposed to many, quote unquote, bad clarinet habits. If there is one bad habit that you never had to teach someone not to do again, what would it be? And why is it such a frustrating thing to have to solve for your students? So basically, like if you could eviscerate one bad habit from all clarinet players, what would it be? Wow, that's a good question. Um, you know, everything to me always goes back to use of air. So if there are bad habits in terms of uh, breathing while playing the clarinet, I would love to never have to teach again. And it usually comes down to people breathing in a very unnatural way, um, which seems simple. But every time uh, we work to uh, work on the air, um, a lot of times it just it's trying to get people to relearn how to breathe. Um, and so I think not having to deal with that uh, would be a luxury. Do you find that you have to sort of reteach yourself sometimes? All the time. Yeah. yeah like I feel like every, every time I pick up my clarinet for like a warm up, I have to like, you know, just kind of focus. And if I don't like sort of reset, you know, I, I, I just like the rest of the, the playing for the day kind of substandard. Yeah, I mean, for me, it always, I always have this, this philosophy in my playing, and, and I try to share with my students is that playing the clarinet for me, I just want as an extension of myself and my voice. Um, and that's easier said than done. But that I always go back to that when I'm working on air, when I'm working on technique, sound. And so a lot of times when you, you just, your natural instincts don't don't go along with that a lot of time and so it's it's reminding myself that it's simply an extension of my breath and not this completely separate use of air every time i pick up the clarinet it seems very simple but it's it's amazing how how hard it is to go against those natural instincts we have when we pick this foreign thing up and try to produce a sound it's always challenging and as i discussed with some of my other guests like playing the clarinet and playing an instrument is, is a lifelong kind of learning process. And you're always 
learning new things and relearning things that you already learned. And that's really like the only way to kind of progress forward in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. So great. Um, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, like where are you from? How did you first get into playing music and the, and of course the clarinet specifically? Sure. I, uh, I would say I primarily grew up outside of Phoenix in Scottsdale, Arizona. I was born outside Toronto. Uh, but when I was young, we moved there. And like most people, I just started in, in grade school. Uh, I was fourth grade. I was eight, just about to turn nine. And, uh, I have two older brothers and both played instruments and one had, there was a clarinet around. So I, I picked that up just to do in school band. And I think for, for a number of years, it was just something I enjoyed doing. Uh, I went to some music camps. I never took lessons up until my sophomore year of high school. It was at that point, you know, I, I just, you know, there's some local music camps and things like that. And I remember it seems hard to believe, but I, I guess I was maybe 14. And I remember calling the Phoenix Symphony and asking if any of their clarinetists in the section taught clarinet and if they'd be willing to take a student. And it was a number of months later, it was the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of high school that I got a call back from Steve Hanasovsky, who's the assistant principal in bass in Phoenix. And, uh, we started lessons that sophomore year, and that was when start, things started to get serious, uh, more serious and getting really focused on it. And that summer, I, I went to Interlochen for camp, uh, and that's where I met Richard Hawkins. And, and from there, I ended up staying for my last two years of high school and studied with Richard Hawkins there. Uh, after Interlochen, um, I actually <laughs> briefly for one semester came to the Eastman School of Music and transferred to the University of Michigan. Uh, and that's where I did my undergrad. And out of school, I got a job in the Kansas City Symphony. I was there for five seasons. The first three were second in E flat and the last two as principal. And then I went to the Boston Symphony in 2008. Uh, a second clarinet and uh, that's pretty much up till now. I was on the faculty of, or I am still on the faculty of, of NEC, New England Conservatory and Tanglewood. And, and then about a year ago, I moved to Rochester to become the professor at the Eastman School of Music. Well, that's great. That's a nice little uh, overview. Um, I'm going to kind of rewind you a bit and just go a little more in depth with your uh, background. So um, I actually never knew that you didn't take lessons until high school. Um, that's kind of unique. But that being said, having spent the majority of your high school education like at Interlochen with Richard, you know, that's that's a pretty significant musical influence, you know, a teacher to have and a mentor. What did like what were you able to take away with studying from Richard and like how did he sort of guide you through those formative years? Um, whereas like someone who may have gone through like a public school system wouldn't have that specific guidance, you know, cause he really pushed you, you know, to the university level, um, and beyond. Looking back at my education and even the jobs I got after school, the timing of everything, I just, I feel so fortunate that things lined up the way they did. Seemingly randomly calling the Phoenix Symphony at the age of 14 and meeting Steve. But I remember when I was really young, I would go to the the public library and there, there were these books of 
summer music festivals and I would write them all down and I'd call every single summer music festival to get a catalog and I would read through and read through who taught there and who played there. Like I just, I wanted to know everything that was going on. And I remember I even as a kid, I had, you could order a, like a poster from Interlochen with that you'd have it like school. I got it and I had it in my room. Um, it was just wanting all that information, but it, it, going back to meeting Steve, I mean, one thing I was, I was really fortunate to have was this lineage of teachers. So from, from getting to meet Steve and studying with him for a year in Phoenix, um, he was a student of Fred Ormond. And then I, uh, went to Interlochen for that summer, met Richard. He was a student of Fred Ormond. And then I studied with Fred at Michigan. And um, just the, that fundamental approach to playing has been so amazing for, for my development as a player and what I've done professionally. I think with, with Richard, it was just, it was such an intense environment and he was so supportive. We were all, I think his students are still like this. We were all obsessed with him. We all wanted to sound like him and be like him. And, um, it was great to have that kind of mentor at a young age. And it was great for me at that time to build upon through my schooling. Uh, I was very fortunate to, to spend those two years in Interlochen. And then, like, so you said that you had this lineage of, you know, the Fred Orman lineage, so to speak. Um, is that why you ultimately decided to go to Michigan was just like you wanted to keep it consistent and like study with the guy who all your teachers had studied with and who you had already learned sort of his way of teaching with? Yeah, I mean, I think when you're young, especially you hear about certain teachers or certain, certain players who went through certain teachers. And I just remember there was a lot of talk because Richard had studied with Fred Orman that that was, you know, he was the one to study with. And, uh, I applied to a variety of schools and, uh, it just, I remember taking, I taking a lesson with Fred and as much as Richard studied with Fred, it was so different in the, um, the interaction in the lesson, but it was something that I thought I really needed. I mean, Fred was incredibly difficult. I, I think the first lesson I had with him, I was crying for about half of it. Um, yeah. Because <laughs> he, he wouldn't let me pass one bar in a slow rosy too because of my rhythm. And I think that would turn a lot of people off, especially nowadays. But that was, I needed that kind of detail and that focus. Um, and so I think after applying for, for Fred, I knew that it was, it was, what I needed in, in for that degree. Yeah, for sure. You said that you went uh, right after you graduated from Michigan, you spent time in the Kansas City Symphony. So what did you learn from like playing that job that ultimately like got you ready for your job with the Boston Symphony? Like where was it just like you were sort of dumped in there and you didn't know what you were doing and you had you had to kind of figure it out or was it like it was really good there and your colleagues pushed you like what, what sort of lessons did you learn in Kansas city? Yeah. Again, just this feeling so fortunate from step-by-step step where I've been. Um, I think leaving Michigan, I was playing at a high level, uh, especially for just taking auditions in that world, but actually sitting on the stage, I had basically no experience. I mean, I had subbed in the Phoenix symphony a few times I played at some great festivals, but this was the first time in a real job. And 
I had never, I didn't apply for a master's. And fortunately this hat, this, I got this job right out of school. And so this was sort of my graduate degree <laughs> as much as yeah, it's, right. it is a great, it is a great job. And it's, it's much more than just going to school for a few years, but I learned so much about playing in a section and the ins and outs of a professional orchestral job um, that I'm so glad I had that because I think I going, say I went from Michigan straight to the BSO. I, I don't know if I could have done that. There's, there's yeah. so many just uh, the ins and outs of coming to work and when to go on stage and where to put your instrument and how to interact with people. And what do you, what are you listening for? What are you looking at that you can't really get on your private lessons during your degree. I mean, it's, it's, you can hear about it, but you, it's something you really need to do on the job. And so I was really fortunate in my section. The first three years was Greg Williams. who's in the Minnesota orchestra now. And we were, uh, we are very close friends and, but also incredibly competitive at the time, which was great. That really pushed me because we were both taking auditions. We even, we traveled to auditions together. Uh, the most famous one is <laughs> the first Minnesota Orchestra audition for Associate E flat was over Thanksgiving. Okay. And we drove together. And uh, I still have pictures somewhere. We had Thanksgiving together in a Perkins restaurant in Mason City, Iowa, on the way to the Minnesota Orchestra audition. So that was that was sort of the that was my life at the time. It was just going from an aud- audition to audition and it was nice to have someone in the section that was doing the same thing. And uh, mm-hmm. he also had more, a little more experience than me. So he really showed me the ropes of, of, of doing the job. And uh, so it was very fortunate to have that um, in the section as a young person. Definitely got me uh, some experience before heading to Boston. To be honest, I don't think anyone's ready when they have their first job. There's just so much to learn in terms of like what you said, like even like how to talk to people or, you know, I got I went into my first job and I was trying to be like buddy, buddy with everybody and best friends. And some people just aren't interested in that. And like, you know, as a bright eyed, bushy tailed kid, like you, you need to learn these lessons somewhere, you know, and then a lot of times you just learn it by doing it. Yeah, there's certain things you can teach. And I, I try to being here at Eastman now with studio classes and uh, a lot of time with the students, I try to share all of that information that this kind of actually comes up a lot with school ensembles and well, I've got there's a pitch thing happening in this piece with the flute player I'm not sure how to to deal with it and a lot of times when you're young and I, I was absolutely I'm sure I was guilty of this you end up being threatening to the other person in the section you're like you need to bring this down it's sharp or it's flat and how do you actually nuance uh, getting something to work together with someone uh, without someone feeling threatened. So a lot of that is just the interaction on the job is really impor- important to know. And again, it's, you can know some of that going in, but uh, you know, every orchestra is different too, and every section's different on how they interact. And I, I've learned that over the years and how you deal with that. You, know, you have to be flexible. You can't just go in and just, I'm all knowing, and this is, this is how it's going to be. Um, because you, you sit with these sections for weeks on end uh in close proximity at least we used to be in close proximity um yeah and years <laughs> on end in, some, in, in a lot of cases too yeah there's a lot of those things that i was never taught in school that once you're in the job you've got to 
you've got to roll with it and uh, figure it all out. Yeah, definitely. Um, so you obviously played second clarinet in the Boston Symphony, and I think there's always this kind of mystery around playing second clarinet. And some people are like, oh, you need to do this. Other people are like, no, you just play it the way you play everything else. So do you have any like tips and tricks that you've learned along the way of someone who's just like looking to be a better second clarinetist or just just like play in the clarinet section? Yeah, it's uh, surprisingly difficult to do well. Um, yes. I think it, at least for me, it's a lot harder than playing principal. The few times I went up to play principal in the BSO or played in the pops, it felt like a vacation week for me. I, I didn't have to be listening for so many things and adjusting constantly to things around me. I think it comes down to how you, how the section plays and how you want to be as a section player. Because there are various ways of doing it. There, there, you'll hear certain sections where the middle voices are not really present. Um, and some principles like that, you know, that they don't really get in the way or overpower anyway. I don't think I ever played like that. I think the main thing I focused on was the intent of the composer. And so there's times where in the second clarinet part, there are moving lines and there are solos. And when those things happen, I would play them just as I would playing principal clarinet. But it's also knowing that when you don't have the, the main line, that you know how to properly support. A lot of this over the years, I found it's sort of hard to describe over, a, you know, over voice w without being in person. But it really comes down to how do you create resonance on the clarinet and being able to control resonance in your sound. So it's not, a lot of people talk, oh, you need to play louder in, in the lower octave, and you need to play not so loud in unisons. I, all that can be true, but for me, I don't think about it as loud and soft. It's more how I can control how I resonate on the instrument. And so I hope that when I play second, the principal player has a very strong sense of a foundation next to them that they can just float over top of it if they've got a moving line and that it's not just sort of disappearing off stage but it's also not threatening and overpowering so it's it's nuancing the resonance and the sound to support the players around you mm -hmm. so every every tanglewood season the bso does a side by side with the tanglewood music center orchestra and you know each each player is basically assigned a bso member um, that they play the same part and I remember my friend Patrick Graham, who plays in the Jacksonville Symphony, played second with you on one of those concerts. And he, I remember he came off stage and he was like, oh, my gosh, he just he's, it's huge. Like his sound is so huge. And he didn't say like, oh, he plays so loud. It's just this like the way that you create the sound. It's it's resonance, like you said, not not volume necessarily. And that's look, it's it's I think it's honestly the luxury of playing in the Boston Symphony and in that in the hall in Boston and Symphony Hall you start to really understand what that means. Like I, I had heard, oh, what is resonance? Or You listen to that orchestra and the, the solo players in that orchestra. And I think, I don't know if you had that experience at Tanglewood, but you learn that um, it's not just about how soft or how loud you can play. It's how you can shape and control resonance in your sound. Yeah, and it's interesting too, because we also got the opportunity to sit on stage while you guys were rehearsing. So it was like, they let you know a few people sit on stage and and i remember we were doing or you guys were doing um shahrazad and i was listening to bill hudgens play the cadenza 
and it just like didn't sound that loud to me but i could hear i could hear the his sound like bouncing around the shed and like you know i i listened to the concert that night and you can like hear everything perfectly so yeah. it was this weird thing of like sitting next to him and seeing what he did versus what you hear in the audience yeah and it's you know a lot of that honestly is over the years hearing bill hearing tom in the section just in, in craig incredible players and i've never really wanted to emulate any particular player but there's certain attributes of all those all the players in the section that i've tried to figure out well what what are they doing to get that what is what is bill doing to get that resonance in his sound and i think that is honestly helped shape how i teach to me, it's not just this abstract, oh, you need more resonance in the sound. What does that mean? What do you need to do to get that resonance? What do you need to do to control that resonance? And I, there are, I, you can explain it. Um, and I think a lot of times people think of all these things as very abstract. You know, I, th I think it's all over the years trying to be able to explain it and give exercises to explain what that means. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all really... Really fascinating stuff. Can you talk about a little bit your schedule with the Boston Symphony? I think that most people don't realize like how much time is spent in rehearsals and concerts, especially during like the pop season and during Tanglewood. So can you just give like a rundown of how crazy the schedule is? Yeah, just a general overview. The season typically starts at the end of September. Um, and I just remember like Kansas City, we had, I think, 14 subscription weeks in the season. Uh, every week in Boston is a, I, I guess, a quote subscription week. They're all orchestral concerts with major conductors and major soloists every week. And so from the end of September into the beginning of December, every week you, be, you have between three and four concerts. The scheduling for that is uh, our weekend is Sunday, Monday, or the days off. Uh, we would have a Tuesday morning rehearsal for two and a half hours. A lot of times we would actually have a Tuesday night concert, which would be repertoire from the previous week. And that, that gets confusing. That took a little while to settle in. Uh, Wednesday is usually a double where we've got a two and a half hour morning rehearsal, two hour afternoon rehearsal. Uh, Thursday morning dress, two and a half hours. Thursday night concert. Uh, Friday concert, a lot of times an afternoon concert, but sometimes in the evening, then a Saturday night concert, and then back to Sunday, Monday off. So the, the, one of the hardest things to get used to is you come in Tuesday morning, you play Beethoven 6, you have the afternoon free, and teach a few lessons, come back, and you got to play Mahler 3 from the week before uh, with a different conductor. And that was just like, that, that took a while to get used to. And then in December, BSO players are also in the Boston Pops, other than the principal winds and strings. Uh, they, they play the chamber players season. Um, but that that is a crazy time. It's holiday pops in Boston. And there's, depending on the year, usually about three weeks or so. And those are typically two to three concerts a day, every day for three weeks. And so it's it gets it gets a little complicated, but there are what they call quota concerts where if you want to keep your normal contract, you play these concerts, but then you can also play additional ones uh, for extra compensation. So it depends how many you choose to do. But there is, I think my first six years in the orchestra, I did every single one of them. 
Um, and I think it was something like 36 concerts in two and a half weeks, something like that, uh, of the same pops concert. Then usually have a week or two off and then you'd start the whole thing over beginning of January, three or four concerts a week, all the way till May. And then there's six weeks of pops in May and June. And that's five concerts a week for six weeks. A lot of times different every night. That took a huge adjustment because there's a lot of things that were standard to them or standard to the Boston Pops that they don't rehearse. And so you show up and you open your book for the night. And it's like, what, what is this? I, I, <laughs> we haven't rehearsed it. Um, yeah, right. Whether you are or not, you become a good sight reader very fast. Um, mm-hmm. And then you got a couple weeks off and then you move, you relocate to the Berkshires to Western Massachusetts, two hours away for two months. And we would do typically three different programs a week for eight weeks, different, different repertoire. And that was Friday, Saturday, Sunday concerts, along with teaching the fellows at, at the Tanglewood Music Center. And then a couple weeks off and you start over again in September. So that's pretty much the year of the, <laughs> the BSS season. Yeah, that's I mean, I think it's great for you to go through all that because people don't realize like how much, you know, the, the major symphony orchestras play. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Tuesday concert is just, I mean, it's kind of nutso, you know, it's just, and then over the summer you have three different programs every week, you know, just, and sometimes it's big stuff like, you know, acts of operas and stuff like that. And you just got to be just constantly preparing. Yeah. And it's, there's, I also, every summer I would do a cha- at least one chamber music concert and then giving lessons and, you know, people would say, oh, it's so it's so beautiful to, be, to spend the summers out there. And yes, it is. It's a great place. But a lot of times I was pretty oblivious to it because I was just I had my head down just working most of the time. It's I, again, I'm, I'm fortunate to have it. And it's, it's a great, uh, a great orchestra, a great environment. But it is uh, it's a it's a it's a lot of work. Yeah. So, uh, in my opinion, uh, of course, this is speaking from an outsider's perspective, but I always thought that like one of the best things about being in the BSO was the opportunity to like teach at Tanglewood over the summer, just because like the level is so high of all the fellows. So, like, can you just speak on that and like how how it, you know has that been rewarding for you? Like, is it is it as glorious as I, I sort of view it as? Again, going back to I, the feeling of being fortunate with. Everything, every place I've been, the timing of getting the BSO job was really good for a number of reasons. But one was that I, before I even started in the BSO, I was hired at, any, at the New England Conservatory to teach just because they, they had, I believe it was Bill Zeshin who was teaching there. He had retired and there was an opening. Here's a new clarinetist in town. And so f- from the moment I stepped in Boston, I really had never taught before. And all of a sudden I'm on the faculty of NEC. And then in the summers, I'm starting to give classes at Tanglewood and give lessons to the fellows. Um, There's very few, I don't know of another place that that would have immediately happened. Where it's like you you join a major orchestra, then you join one of the best conservatories in the country. uh, And then one of the best summer festivals in the country all at once. It's sort of, at the at the time, I just felt like it was the most well-rounded position I could get because I was able to do all these things. And I, you know, there's no way I would have gotten the Eastman job without that kind of experience. 
So if I, you know, if I had just gone to the BSO and I hadn't joined the faculty of NEC or didn't do classes at Tanglewood, I, I barely got an undergraduate degree. So to be able to get the job at Eastman, it was because of those years at NEC and Tanglewood. And it, it was great. I mean, I had, I've had some great students at NEC and obviously at Tanglewood. I mean, I, I think when I was keeping track, pretty much every year at Tanglewood, within that the next year 50 percent of the class got jobs at the least every year it was just um and for me it was fascinating to get these players from all the best programs in the country and really see what the end result of all these programs are you know what what's working at the highest level and also some things that were sort of lacking i thought um which i think is building gaps for me of, of what I think I, uh, what, what's important for me to be teaching right now. I, I mean, it's, it's amazing to be able to teach at that level with people who are on the cusp of getting jobs and having, you know, just being able to put some fi finishing touches on their playing. Cause it's not like we're talking about how to play the clarinet. It's just, it's just all about refinement and different techniques of audition taking. And uh, so, yeah, that, I was, Definitely one of the highlights of, of, of the job in Boston. Yeah, and, you know, to, to what you were saying, I, I think I was there for two, well, I was there for three summers, but two summers as a fellow. You know, my first year, I'm pretty sure th three people got jobs. And then the, the second year, I think currently all of us are employed. Uh, maybe there's one who isn't, but it's, it's you know you leave the place and like half the TMC orchestra all of a sudden is occupying major chairs yep. symphony orchestras. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. So it's it's cool to to be around that and you know it and I think you know being around the Boston Symphony and being around people like you is sort of the the extra push that like those people need. Um, just just the little like fine tuning, couple things here and there, and just that immersive environment that just really it helped me tremendously. Obviously. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I always turn to you for equipment advice, and I know that we spoke before, and you actually give an equipment class at Eastman in addition to like your studio class. Yeah. So can you talk about like what kind of equipment you recommend your students based on like what's worked for you, and like why do you feel like it's the best thing to accomplish like what you were trying to get out of your setup? Yeah. So I think with setup, especially this last year, all of a sudden having a lot more students than I've ever had before is it all comes down to functionality and i mean i can get into that more but it's it's less about this brand this model and more about making sure it functions and it's not getting in the way of you fundamentally playing the instrument and a lot of setups do that um I mean, i'm happy to get into what i play and what a lot of my students play but you could take what i play you could buy everything that i play on and most likely it'll have no resemblance to what I actually play because it's varying so much. And the, how, how does this mouthpiece balance with this barrel and this clarinet in terms of resistance and response? And um, so a lot of it just comes down to uh, functionality. Most of my students play buffets. I don't, if people play other things, that's fine. I, I think over the years, even like going back to what I said before about um, getting catalogs for music festivals, I I'm I really want to have as much information as possible. And so if someone has asked me about equipment, I don't want to just say things 
opinions about equipment without actually having experience with it. So I've I've tried to to go through as much equipment as I can and have a, a, a good sense of the pros and cons to every type of setup. So people do come in with different instruments and they sound really great, uh, and that's fine. But I think generally speaking, a lot of my students tend to play on Van Doren mouthpieces mainly because they're just a good fundamental mouthpiece when you get, obviously, when you get a good one. And so I, I think more times than not, at least in this past year, it would either be something like a B40 Lyre, M13 Lyre, or some kind of BD variant. That's seemingly, those are the three areas that a lot of people seem to be playing on. I play on a B40 Lyre 13 series, and I have for, I don't know, seven years or so. Uh, and before that, when I got the job in Boston, I was playing M13 Lyre. Uh, and that being said, I have a huge collection of vintage mouthpieces. Those can be amazing. Uh, I think they're really fascinating to play, and but I don't actually play them professionally. Um, and I, I just play buffet R13, nickel plated R13s. But there's people, a lot of people in my studio do not do, play those. They play Toscas or Traditions or Festivals and... Um, there's a wide variety. I think it just, again, it just comes down to making sure that what they're doing functions well. Yeah. And I think, you know, you mentioned that most people play on Van Doren's that at least study with you. And I, I think that what you said, you said this one time, which was, you know, you can kind of put any read on there and it, it'll at least have like a core to the sound. And I feel like that's what those mouthpieces do really well. Whereas like other mouthpieces, you have to be kind of futzy with the reads and it's more, they're just less read friendly, I guess. Whereas the Van Doren's like you can kind of, as long as you put air through something, it'll usually produce a nice sound for you. Actually, the reason I, I'll, I'll just say quickly when I switched to a Van Doren mouthpiece, not surprisingly, I played on Richard's mouthpieces, Richard Hawkins's mouthpieces for years. I got my job in Kansas city on his mouthpieces. Richard's awesome. I then went into this sort of like vintage mouthpiece realm. And I remember I, I took an audition and I was playing a vintage mouthpiece and I was, I think I made it probably to the end. I was in the finals of the audition somewhere and didn't get the job. And I got the, some comments from the committee and it didn't seem like anything I had ever heard before and things with my sound. And I remember coming back and I had my friend Greg in Kansas City, Greg Williams, play through my mouthpieces. I wanted to hear him play my setup. And that's when it made sense to me. Because he put on the vintage mouthpiece I was playing, and you know, nine out of the ten reeds just sounded didn't have any focus to them. One of the reeds sounded fantastic. He sounded so good on it, but a lot of them just the the change just between reeds was huge. And he put on, I think I had an M13 lyre or M15 or something. He put every single reed on it, sounded the same. It was so consistent. It was mainly he just felt, you know, there was probably, he felt different about it or how it responded, but the, what came out, what came through was very, very consistent. And so that, that to me was a wake up call, especially when you're trying to control all these inconsistencies and in audition taking and control variables. And that was one thing. It's like, all right, what, I just need this kind of consistency. And then from there, I just kept on playing them and get better. I'm just constantly trying to get better and better ones. Um, mm -hmm. but that was why I had made the switch. So I, what you said, I totally agree. 
Yeah, that's that's really great. Um, I feel the same way. It's you know, I, I do. I think they're maybe the best mouthpiece. Nah, not necessarily, but in terms of consistency, like I always know, you know, no matter what my reads are doing, it might feel bad, but I know that whatever's coming out is going to be like a nice sound and and a, you know an acceptable product. Yeah. Uh, so you have a pretty rigorous catalog of like fundamental exercises that that you have sort of accumulated for yourself over time. And I know that there's like a set list of things that you do every day to help keep yourself centered and like tuned in your instrument. So can you describe what, you know, sort of some of these exercises and, and just for everyone's benefit, just like what you do to sort of make sure that every day you're sort of tuned in and, and, and ready to, to go. Yeah. So I, a lot of this goes back to when I got my job in Kansas city, I just, I realized that there are people around me who are fantastic players, but you could tell that things had shifted over the years, you know, just in this happens with everyone, just how, you know, you start whatever orchestra you play in, you are going to develop habits, good and bad. And I I was very uh, aware of this and I wanted to figure out a way from to, to keep my consistency, my fundamentals, and not developing bad habits playing in the orchestra. I mean, you got to think you're sitting in a 100-piece orchestra putting out a lot of sound every day. Things are going to start moving and changing. And if you're, not, if you're not keeping up with it and having you know, uh, a consistent warm-up every day, it's hard not to fall into these traps. Um, so I think especially when I got to Boston – it got very streamlined because I didn't have much time to warm up. And so I, I had my, my essential warm up that checks just sort of checked all the boxes. Um, this, especially I was telling someone recently about this after telling you about the Tangwood season, we would play Beethoven nine. It was the last concert of every Tangwood season. I felt after that concert, I couldn't really play the clarinet anymore. I just felt that <laughs> Everything had gone out the window. I was manipulating. My air was not right. My fingers, my hands and wrists were tense. And so those two or three weeks in between Tangwood and the the start of the the new season, I really felt like I had to relearn how to play the clarinet. And so that's where I started developing these exercises. The one that I I teach a lot of people, I'm sure it's, I've taught you at some, or showed you at some point, is this alternate D exercise that I developed. Mm-hmm. that basically what it is, it's an efficient exercise, takes maybe a minute to do at the most. And if the notes come out, it means that everything is, a, is working efficiently. And if the alternate D doesn't come out in this exercise, I can pinpoint exactly what is going on fundam- fundamentally that is not working. And so it's interesting with this exercise because I give it to a lot of people and everyone has a different issue. And so it's a really good way to find the specific issues people are dealing with. So it could be something like you're manipulating too much with your bottom lip, very common. Um, it could be that your tongue position is not consistent or in the right place. It could be the direction of error in your oral cavity through the clarinet is not consistent. And so this exercise would get me perfectly on track every single day um, and just making sure that I wasn't developing these these bad habits of manipulating with my embouchure or tongue or air. And so that's always, and I still, to this day, I do that, that exercise every single day. 
Um, and it's a good one for sure. I, I, I've, I haven't done it much recently, but I, but every time I stop doing it and I come back to it after like a month, I like can't do it. It's, it's, it's good to just like reset everything and be like, okay, this is what I need to be doing. Yeah. And it's just, it's a reminder to, to me, because I, there's, especially when you're on the job, you're just, there's so many other things going on that you're not, I'm not constantly thinking about my tongue position and all these fundamental things. So it's, it's good to check in for me every day. I also just, I love the ritual of, of these certain exercises. I've been doing some of these exercises every day for 20 years. And so for me, that's, it's important with my playing to have that. And I know some people just sort of pick up a clarinet and play and sound really good, but I, um, I don't do these crazy long warmups anymore that I used to do when I was young, but it's very efficient few warm-ups. I always do this. This is one I've done over 20 years. This is a Fred Orman exercise based on the first scale of Behrman book number three. It's the five note exercise. Um, again, takes like a minute, minute and a half, and it covers so many bases immediately in your playing. So everything from sound, legato, consistency of starting notes, pitch, evenness of of sound throughout all the registers and something i can do very quickly that really gets me set for the day there's various long tone warm-ups i do and then i usually for technique i always do something technical i probably do a little less finger technique because i don't find i lose that really fast i like to it's mainly for to sustain my technique but i'm always doing articulation every single day i do some kind of articulation both for quality of slow articulation, but also for fast articulation. So those are sort of in a nutshell what I do. And um, in Boston with the schedule, I would literally do that for 15 minutes a day. That's great. I mean, just the fact that you can go through all that and you've got it so streamlined that you can, you know, it takes you 15 minutes to go through it. I'll, uh, I'll do another anecdote here. So I remember you gave a class at Tanglewood on the five note Behrman scale and you were talking about how like, okay, this all has to be in tune. And, you know, every single one of my notes is like within two cents and, you know, the articulate. And, and I remember I left that class and I just like felt, and this was right after I had gotten my job in Indianapolis. I left that class and I felt like I knew nothing about the clarinet or how to play. <laughs> uh, and I remember Patrick was walking back with me and I looked at, I just gave him this look and he, he looks at me and goes, I know nothing. And I was like, thank you. I'm so glad <laughs> someone else feels that way. So, um, but it's it's really great, and I've actually been doing that every day since I learned that from you. Um, and it it really is, just helps to dial everything in. And you know, I'll I'll post a, an example of it online once once this episode airs. But yeah, it's it's really cool that you've just you know figured out all these things that work for you and help you kind of just dial in um, that you can just do every day. So you have an online workshop coming up in August for professional orchestral auditions. And having listened to and taken many auditions in your career, can you describe your basic approach to auditions and the kinds of things that students and professionals alike will learn by attending your workshop? Yeah, I, the reason I'm doing this um, is that it really comes from all the summers at Tanglewood because what would happen a lot of times is I would, I would do the class, a couple classes at Tanglewood, uh, do some lessons, and then every year during the year, Tanglewood fellows would, a couple would try to come through and do sort of like a audition boot camp, or they'd come to Boston and try to come back and take lessons. Um, and a couple years ago, the entire section 
actually came back in maybe the wintertime or March. I can't remember. And we did three days together on stage at Symphony Hall. You don't get that type of experience typically in school, that kind of intensive training. And especially when you're, uh, when you're out of school, you don't have that ability to just, you know, get together and work on the, I guess, the art of taking an audition. So it's, it sort of stemmed from that and being able to offer some of that guidance to a, a wide range of players. Uh, it's been interesting to see all the people who are applying because it's everyone from beginnings of their college uh, years to veteran professionals have signed up for this thing. So it should be really interesting. There's a lot of aspects to it. Um, maybe I'll just quickly go through what I was thinking, what I'm going to cover in this class that I think um, it's a three-day course. There are two two-hour classes a day, so six classes total. Um, I'm going to do a class on fundamentals. Uh, I'm going to do a class on warm-ups. I'm going to do two classes on process. So preparation to take an audition. I just, I felt like instead of saying, oh, this class, like we did at Tangwood, uh, we're going to do Brahms three and Beethoven six in this class. I, I didn't think that would be that interesting, but I'll use certain excerpts as a uh, sort of a template on the different ways you can create a process for taking an audition. So that'll be for two classes. And then my friend Ben Frymuth is going to be giving a class on bass clarinet. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to do a class on E flat and second clarinet for taking auditions. Um, so that's great. The plan in terms of what we're going to cover. Yeah, it sounds great. And, and I highly recommend it. Are, is it. I'm assuming there's still spots available. Yeah, I think we're getting close to a deadline, but I think if people are interested in doing this, it's still, it's at the beginning of August. So there, there is still time. I think even if things have, deadlines have passed, people can reach out to me or reach out to the program directly and get through. I don't think it's, it's going to be too um, strict on the, on the deadline this year. Great. And, uh, you know, I, I would highly recommend it. I learned a lot from about audition taking from Michael. And of course, Ben is, you know, one of the best bass clarinet players in the country. And, you know, there's a lot of knowledge to be gained from, from those two. Um, so besides clarinet, I always associate you with two other C words, which are coffee and cars. So can you talk a little bit about some of your hobbies when you aren't like rigorously preparing for or performing concerts? Sure. You know, <laughs> things have definitely changed over the last few years. I have two young boys one and three years old so i'm still constantly doing my hobbies but probably at a lesser extent than i used to but yes i i would say other than the clarinet my life is my family but cars and coffee um so in terms of coffee it's really i think with everything i do i get very narrow very focused on one particular thing so it's you know, people I'm sure ask you, oh, do you play jazz or do you play saxophone or do you play the oboe? It's, you know, I play the clarinet. I play, I, I, I play jazz if I have, you know, in pops. I'm not, a, I don't ever claim to be a jazz player, but I'm a classical clarinet player. Um, and I think it's the same thing with my other hobbies. I really enjoy making espresso. That's it. I don't do 
lattes and cappuccinos and pour overs. And so that's something I've refined over the years, looking at my hobbies uh, and what I do for a living, it all has the same mindset. They're all sort of interchangeable. And what's interchangeable about it is there's a lot of details that need to line up to get a uh, good end result. And it's the same thing with taking an audition. There's so many variables that you have to master um, to to play a good, successful audition. And it's the same thing with coffee. When I'm making an espresso, one variable can be off and can completely throw the, the shot of espresso off. And so I, I think that's how my mind works. And so that's why I'm drawn to it. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I use a very manual, old Swiss espresso machine. This It's called a Cremina. Um, and I love it. It's And for now, nowadays, I'm not really necessarily into it as much as I used to be uh, or obsessed with it, but it is my ritual every morning. You know, I pull four shots every morning, two for me, two for my wife. And I always have my afternoon, we're getting close to it today, uh, afternoon shot of espresso. So that's, it's nice to have that ritual every single day. Um, but it's also, it was not something nice to have when we were on tour with the BSO. You get to these, you get dropped in these foreign cities. Um, it's a great way to learn a city is that we land and I would just be researching where can I go for coffee. And so I would either get a, uh, take a train or walk to wherever coffee was and just go from coffee place to coffee place. Um, and it's a good way to learn, learn new cities. So that was actually worked out well for, my, for the time in Boston. Um, and then cars are a whole other story, uh, you know. Uh, well, to tie both of them together, I remember we were having coffee once at uh, I think whatever it's called, Lennox Coffee. You you took one of your cars there, and it was like one of your old Volvos. Can, can you describe the what the model is? Yeah, I have a 1964 Volvo 1800s. Uh, most people have no idea what that is. Um, yeah, which, which is one of the reasons I I mean, <laughs> I like cars that people have. If I tell you what it is, it's just like oh, it's a big boxy station wagon, um, but it's not. Um, it's it's pretty much the only sports car Volvo has ever made. Uh, it was made famous in the the TV show The Saint. Um, he drove a Volvo 1800. It's just sort of been uh, that model car has been part of my family. My dad, my mom and dad got one new with European delivery in the 60s. My, I have two older brothers. They both had them. Uh, I think they both have one now. So... Uh, when I was in Kansas City, I remember seeing an ad for one in the paper. And so I called on it and I, I went to check it out and I ended up buying it. It needed a ton of work. Um, but it turned out, it ended up being a project for me. And again, Greg Williams. Greg, is his nickname is Handy. He can sort of fix anything. And so after rehearsals, we used to go to my garage, which was walkable to the hall. And we used to just start taking stuff apart. I knew nothing about cars. Um, and so that was a really nice escape to just have something else to work on, whether it's even just detailing it or fixing something or just going for a drive. Uh, that a lot of times was one of the best parts of being in the Berkshires was the most memorable times that were not musical uh, would be after a double rehearsal at Tanglewood and I get out at like 6.30 at night and my house that I rented was on the other side of the mountain from Tanglewood and that drive home was just 
it was great. And so that's, it's a nice escape. It's freedom. It's uh, so it's, but it's still something I do uh, just not as much with the kids right now, but hopefully later on they'll, they'll join. Sure. Me. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it was to finish my anecdote that yeah. I remember we sitting there outside and yeah, I swear to God, it was like every 10 seconds, someone would walk up and like, you know, look at the interior, or like walk around it. And they just, you know, most people are very respectful and just like look at it, but it's a really cool looking car. And it was just like in the middle of this town. And it was just hilarious watching all these people like kind of ogle over your car in the middle of Linux. Yeah. It's, uh, it's actually one of the reasons to not stop somewhere. Um, is just right. you know, I think it's a lot of attention. So it's, uh, yeah. but it's it's great. I, I love it's it's a fun thing to do. It's also a good way to meet other people, which that gets into a whole other thing about playing in orchestras and how do you how do you find a community of people maybe outside of your work? And I think having these hobbies is a good way good way to meet people. I mean, in Boston, there is a couple of people I'd always meet for coffee, knew nothing about what I did for a living. Um, or different car events I would go to, or last summer I did a, a car rally through New Hampshire. And people don't really care what I do, which is kind of, it's nice. You know, I, you just sort yeah. of, you get to know different people uh, in a different way. So that's one of the beauties of having stuff outside of music. Yeah, I think that's really important is just to have hobbies, uh, if nothing else, like you said, just to like meet different kinds of people. Um, so you mentioned that you have two young kids. So do you find that like, practicing is like more difficult or you know is it the other spectrum where you're like it's kind of less stressful because you're like okay i have 45 minutes here i'm going to practice and just get it done it's difficult um especially <laughs> especially right now because uh my wife and i both work and then with the all the covid stuff going on uh not having any childcare, we don't have any family in the area and so it's it, we're just basically like back and forth like i i'll get a little time and then i'll run upstairs and get the kids or put one down for a nap it gets pretty hectic in terms of practice so that's where we've sort of uh, trying to schedule this stuff as best as possible it's pretty hard with two kids but um mm -hmm. you know like in the morning i get breakfast ready for everyone and then i go downstairs and i get my it's supposed to be an hour but it turns out usually it's usually about half an hour um get some kind of warm-up in and then find some time either during nap or after they go down for the night to get some work in it's made me i think playing in boston but now with the kids has made me an incredibly efficient practicer yeah <laughs> I, uh you know, I I remember when I showed up in Michigan, my t Fred said in the studio class, one of the first classes, well, if you're in my studio, you have to practice five hours a day. And it, it, that's sort of mean. I, I think it's it was more of just like a try to push people to practice more. But that it's so meaningless because five hours for one person is completely – I mean, I can I could probably practice in half an hour what most people practice in five hours. Uh, or what students do. So it's um, it's becoming efficient, but it's also helping me as a teacher. The, the students have so many things going on with academics and ensembles and how can they be more efficient in their practice? And I think I've been forced to do that over the years. It's it's definitely a challenge. Yeah, it's a challenge, but it seems, it seems like with all your experience and everything, you're sort of 
crafted a way to sort of fit it in with everything else in your life, which is, which is really great. So, um, do you have, before we leave, do you have any last words, shout outs, pieces of advice, words of wisdom? You know, I think the thing that I, I, of the many things I insult with my students is with everything that you do is take your time, you know, not try to get anything perfect in one sitting in one day. It's a very gradual process with anything, but especially with playing. And I, you know, people who study with me know this, but it's like how you do slow practice and how you do reads. And uh, I think one of the busy, biggest mistakes is trying, you know, as humans, we want to get it perfect as fast as possible. And just take your time, gradually improve, make it a little better every day. And I think that is, in, is very helpful. Um, and that's helped me over the years where I just, you want that instant gratification, but a, mo more times than not, when you practice or work like that, it doesn't stick. Um, and so I think that's, you know, just a philosophy to be thinking about as you're working. Well, that's really great advice. And I uh, can't thank you enough for being with me today. Um, I know I'm very lucky to sort of have you as someone I can always call on in case of either crisis or advice, uh, whatever the, <laughs> the, the case might be. And uh, yeah, just thank you for, you know, giving all this great information. And if anyone's interested in, you know, studying with Michael, um, you know, he's teaching at Eastman and of course, you know, Tanglewood and NEC. So um, get in touch with him and, and I can't recommend him highly enough as a teacher. So for our new listeners out there, please make sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram at The Candid Clarinetist. Once again, I am Sam Rothstein and thanks for tuning in to The Candid Clarinetist.